0: welcome to ace podcasts thanks for tuning in as we elevate clinical endocrinology by taking deep dives into trends and topics that can help us improve our patient care and global health find the latest episodes on aace.com podcasts and now let's meet the endocrine experts who will be talking with us today
1: hello i'm adriana joachimasko from emory university in atlanta On behalf of the American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists, I have the pleasure to host this ACRO 2020 podcast featuring Dr. Shlomo Melmed, the Executive Vice President and Dean of the Medical Faculty at Cedar Sinai in Los Angeles. Dr. Melmed is a world-renowned scientist and pituitary expert and the Chief Editor of the Pituitary Journal. Dr. Melmed, welcome.
0: Thank you. Good morning or good afternoon or wherever you are, and thank you for inviting me to chat with you this morning.
1: The topic of today's podcast is treatment of acromegaly. Primary therapy is transphenoidal removal of the tumor. Several publications indicate that patients have superior outcomes at pituitary centers of excellence. In your view, What are the essential ingredients of such centers?
0: Well, that's a very topical question because for many years we've known that surgical outcomes for pituitary tumors are enhanced in centers where the surgeon has more experience with a higher volume of patients. We've known that many endocrinologists send their patients to tertiary centers for expert opinion because of the fact that sometimes management is so complex for these patients. And so a few years ago, Pituitary Society decided to uh, engage in a study which resulted in now two publications from uh, Felipe Casanueva in Spain, which formalize the structural and functional characteristics of an ideal pituitary center. An ideal pituitary center is defined by those criteria as a center where All the talents that are focused on the patient with a pituitary disorder, the endocrinologist, the surgeon, the radiotherapist, the imaging expert, sometimes and often even the pathologist are all engaged in an interdisciplinary, comprehensive, integrated approach to treating the patient with a pituitary disorder. And the center would also be, therefore, better poised to train young clinicians and scientists for further careers in the pituitary arena. And finally, and most importantly, the availability of an integrated comprehensive center would also be a very, very important reservoir for generating new discoveries and ideas and moving the borders, the cutting edge of our understanding of both the biology of these tumors, but most importantly, the integrated patient-focused management For these disorders. So that's why the Pituitary Centers of Excellence, PTCOEs, have now been clarified and well-defined in literature. And hopefully around the world, we'll be able to emulate uh, those criteria and provide the best integrated care for our patients, bringing a multidisciplinary approach to bear on a single patient.
1: Thank you very much. So let me talk about a clinical scenario that is not uncommon after surgery in our clinical practice. What is your advice for clinicians who see patients who, despite significantly improved postoperative IGF-1 levels, still manifest IGF-1 levels that are slightly above the upper normal range?
0: Well, Adriana, this is probably the single most common question that I get asked from clinicians all over the world. It's a very, very common conundrum that the clinician faces. I have a patient who has a well-described pituitary adenoma screening growth hormone. The patient undergoes successful surgery. The resection is outstanding. The MRI is completely clear. The patient feels great. All the patient's symptoms have disappeared. There's no evidence for hyperglycemia or joint pains. Blood pressure is normal. Growth hormone is suppressed, either random growth hormones or levels of growth hormone after a glucose load. And yet the IGF-1 remains a little bit elevated. Sort of like a niggling, you know, if the upper limit of normal is 250 or 280, the IGF-1 levels will fluctuate between 300 and 320 or 330 sometimes even 350. And the question is what to do, what to do with these patients? Should you chase the IGF-1? And there are several answers that I give. The first answer is repeat the IGF-1 measurement. Because as you know, IGF-1 measurements in our laboratories are not very precise. And they can fluctuate both within and between laboratories. They fluctuate during the time of the day in the same patient. And so the reliability of assays is a very important concern for these patients. So my first suggestion is repeat the assay, repeat the measurement. If it's on repeat, it is still high, then my next suggestion is to wait. Wait six months. The recent uh, Pituitary Society guideline updates suggest up to six months, IGF-1 can still be elevated, But sometimes we see that these elevations may last even longer, up to a year after surgery before the IGF-1 really comes down to normal. So my bottom line message is don't chase the IGF-1. Don't treat the patient just because of the biochemically, mildly elevated IGF-1 level, if everything else is normal. And the best approach to those patients is time, the duration. And as the duration after surgery increases, The chances are that if a patient is truly cured by the surgeon, the IGF-1 level will normalize. In fact, I I could even go back and say, I've seen some patients who only normalize after a year. And I know there are patients described sometimes who normalize after 18 months. So there's no rush if the patient is asymptomatic.
1: So we know that some patients with acromegaly cannot achieve remission as a result of surgery. And that's because they present, unfortunately, with large invasive tumors that cannot be completely removed. This is where the medical treatment comes in. And today, medical treatment of acromegaly includes tumor-targeting agents and growth hormone receptor antagonists. Somatostatin receptor ligands have been the mainstay of therapy with now four different FDA approved medications in this class. Also, a growth hormone receptor antagonist is currently approved for use in acromegaly, while dopamine agonists have been used off label. Dr. Melmud. What is new in the 2020 consensus document with regards to the medical treatment of acromegaly?
0: Well, we usually when you ask that question, most people would have to answer, well, this year there's nothing much new. It's more of the same. We have our approved, approved molecules and we can treat our patients with a varied menu of, of therapeutic approaches. For the last two years, actually, and especially the last year, We have indeed had some major advances which will help patients. There are two important new advances to my mind as we assess the uh, the updated approach to consensus guidelines published by the Pituitary Society this month. The first is the use of combination therapies. Combination therapies of using a somatostatin receptor ligand with either a dopamine agonist all with a growth hormone receptor blocker like Big visamont, are not approved. So combination therapy will not appear in the approved labels of these medications. However, there have been uh, several important studies published this year, which indicate that various formulations of combination will in fact provide very, very effective control. In fact, um, we have just uh, uh, published a study directed by Vivian Bonnet at our center showing in a prospective fashion that you can achieve 96% of biochemical control of patients who receive low-dose somatostatin receptor ligand once a month plus relatively low-dose pegvisomant, the growth hormone receptor blocker, once or twice a week. And this combination is as cost effective than all the other combinations that have been put out in the literature, in fact, less expensive. And so both in terms of efficacy, achieving 96% of patients achieving control, as well as lowering the cost of therapy will be a very, very uh, important indicator of a wonderful new opportunity for patients to enjoy in an attempt to achieve control without having to undergo daily injections with the added birth hormone receptor blocker. So that's just one example which is recent, which really exemplifies the approach to cocktail therapy. And I strongly suspect that as we go forward, we will be, all of us, be refining these approaches to really achieve maximal control for our patients. But there are other studies from Europe which would tend to support this, both in controlled and uncontrolled patients. And so I think combination therapy will become uh, part of the standard practice for endocrinologists. But I want to emphasize it's not approved, so it's not in the label. And the second exciting advance for therapy is the newly available and newly approved oral octreotide capsules. And the availability of oral octreotide capsules gives our patients a very effective and user-friendly approach to try and achieve control for their disorder. The advantage of an oral capsule are, firstly, some people prefer oral pills to injections, Secondly, we know that patients who undergo monthly injections complain about their injections. And Christian Straussberger, with a large group of co-investigators, published a study uh, uh, two years ago showing the deleterious impacts of injections on patients' quality of life on their subjective clinical feelings. Uh, Besides being painful and being irritating and sometimes actually causing bruising, injections also require a visit to the doctor or to the clinic require missing work, require finding parking, registering for the pharmacy to obtain the medication. And so by having available an an oral alternative, this would really, really, really help patients. And the third advantage for an oral approach to treating these patients is the fact that many patients complain of an increasing symptoms towards the end of the month of the injection cycle. The last five, six, seven days of the month they feel much worse. And this has now been documented both in the Strasburger study as well as in a recent study by Eliza Gear in New York showing that patient symptoms, a headache, joint pains, just f- not feeling good, fatigue, really exacerbate as the effects of the monthly injection wane. And so hopefully with the availability of a constant dose of octreotide by a daily oral administration will obviate the breakthrough symptoms which occur when the uh, effects of the monthly injection wane. So those are some of the reasons why we believe that our patients are asking us to try oral approaches to their therapy. Bear in mind that the therapy is approved. It's approved for those patients who have shown to be responsive to injectable somatostatin receptor ligands and then can be switched to the oral. It is very early days. The drug was only approved uh, a couple of months ago. And so I'm sure that we're going to be gaining a lot of experience, both for ourselves, but most importantly for our patients over the next few months and years as the use of the oral alternative becomes more prevalent. But this is really a very, very exciting advance for our patients. It's very important to understand that the active molecule in the capsules is octreotide. It's the same octreotide that is contained in the injection vials. It's a little bit different from lanreotide in terms of its structure, but both octreotide and lanreotide both target the same receptor profile. And the pharmacoactivity of the ligand on the peripheral cell is identical. It's the mode of delivery that's different. That is why the side effects that have been reported with the oral octreotide have been superimposable with side effects that we see with our patients who are receiving the injectable. So the side effect profile is quite similar except, of course, for the injection-associated side effects. So the safety signals so far from two phase three studies, as well as several subsequent publications that are coming out in abstract form, indicate that there are no additional safety concerns. But, you know, this is a new new medication, and so we have to be vigilant and make sure that our surveillance is in place to assure ourselves that we're able to uh, assure patient safety.
1: Indeed, these are very, very promising times for patients with acromegaly. I think we're finally heading towards personalized treatment from all respects. And I think it's also exciting what happens in research laboratories. In your research laboratory, you are working to unveil pathogenetic mechanisms of pituitary tumorigenesis. In your September 2020 publications in the Journal of Clinical Investigation, you describe a link between cyclic AMP signaling, GHRH, and DNA damage. How does this study elucidate the pathogenesis of GH secreting adenomas?
0: Well, that's a very tough question to answer. It's the bottom line is we don't know. But we don't know what causes pituitary adenoma, but we have a lot of new information, uh, especially over the last year, that has come out from other labs as well as from ourselves. In our study, Anat Ben Shlomo in, in our lab led a very comprehensive prospective study of 159 pituitary tumor specimens obtained prospectively. And we, like many others, undertook a very comprehensive sequencing of these patients. And not surprisingly, because no one has shown it before, not surprisingly, no major oncogene mutations were detected. And this is pretty unique for any tumor type. And we, we've been grappling with this conundrum for several years now, in that this is a neoplastic growth which hypersecretes a hormone continues to proliferate, but there doesn't appear to be any uh, major activating or inactivating oncogene mutation. But what we did find was a very, very severe degree of single copy number variation of chromosomes. A picture of chromosomal instability with a a lot of deletions, a lot of heterogeneous chromosomal damage. And interestingly, The chromosomal damage and the single copy number variations of chromosomes were highest in the secreting tumors as compared to the non-secreting tumors. And growth hormone secreting tumors particularly had a very high level of uh, single copy number alterations of their chromosomes. And then we went further and analyzed the pathways that were associated And it turns out that one of the pathways of the several that we observed was the cyclic AMP pathway. And we know that cyclic AMP is involved in stimulating growth hormone secretion. We know that from the older work from Wiley Vale's uh, original discovery that uh, growth hormone releasing hormone induces cyclic AMP to induce growth hormone production. And we then uh, reasoned well, maybe there's a link. Maybe cyclic AMP being elevated by growth hormone releasing hormone or another as yet to be determined factor also contributes to the chromosomal instability. And that is exactly what we found, that we were able to link the nodal effects of cyclic AMP both on increasing growth hormone secretion and on effecting DNA damage. And most interestingly, When we uh, used animal cell models, because human pituitary cell models are not available yet, we found that we could reverse the effects of increasing cyclic AMP or effects of GHRH agonists by somatostatin. And octreotide actually reverses the impact of GHRH and other cyclic AMP-inducing agents on a pituitary dna damage showing that this is consistent with the fact that these are not malignant tumors these are benign tumors and a signaling disruption is in fact at play causing these tumors rather than an oncogenic mutation and that is good news for patients because if it's a signaling dysfunction or disruption all these signals are very effective targets for therapy So our next step now is to try and target these signaling-disrupting lesions with pharmacological agents to try and reverse them or at least halt them. And so this elucidates a very, very uh, neat linkage between DNA damage, growth hormone hypersecretion, and the lack of malignancy development which is such an important biological observation for patients with pituitary tumors. It's important and it's reassuring. So when a patient comes to you and says, you know, I've been told by my doctor that I have a brain cancer, that's wrong. This is not cancer. Uh, This is a very unique adenoma caused by a disruption of signaling. And our study hopefully will elucidate some aspects of those signaling disruptions. There was another study which just came out recently from uh, Belgium, which really allows a further elucidation of the signaling disruption in these tumors. And this study is based upon recent observations that a form of gigantism is associated with trisomy X, so-called the X-Lag syndrome. These young patients have very severe gigantism. And they have high levels of cyclic AMP and a protein called GPR101. And what these investigators did was that they actually created a transgenic mouse overexpressing pituitary somatotroph directed GPR101. And they had a very unique finding. They found that yes, in these mice became giants, just like the patients did. These mice had higher blood sugars just like the patients have. They had higher lean body mass and lower fat mass just like the patients had, but no tumors. They did not develop pituitary tumors. They just are revved up constitutive hypersecretion of growth hormone, uh, which could explain the fact that these patients are giants. So on the one hand, the model does extrapolate the human disease with a lot of validity and faithfully. However there's clearly another factor which leads to the hyperproliferation. And so Albert Becker is in Belgium who spearheaded this beautiful work. Um, and many of us around the world now are pursuing parallel and similar approaches to try and dissect the signaling mediated causes of growth hormone screening tumors rather than an oncogenic approach. And again, I think this is first of all, it's fascinating biology. It's wonderful pathophysiology. It, it, it opens up new avenues of, of knowledge for us, but again, reemphasizes the fact that these are signaling defects and not cancers. And that is very reassuring for our patients.
1: Thank you for such an elegant explanation. And it sounds to me that we're almost at a place where we could shift gears, almost like a paradigm shift, and I'm super excited to be a practicing 2 endocrinologist at at this time. We might have a few more minutes, and if you have any other notable recent discoveries that you would like to share with our listeners, please go ahead.
0: What I would like to emphasize, and thank you for asking such an open-ended question, is I would like to emphasize the recent spate of publications from your lab, from many others around the world, on on both epidemiology and patient-centered feelings. In terms of epidemiology, and your paper in in Endocrine really uh, is an exemplar of this, we are now seeing distinct sexual differences. Males appear to develop acromegaly at a younger age than females. However, the tumors are larger in females. And in some studies, the tumors are more aggressive in females. And so we don't understand the gender differences. And I think that now that these epidemiological data have been published and are available for us to really assess uh, objectively, you and your colleagues have opened up a very, very important arena for researchers to understand the sex differences between both the presentation of acromegaly, but most importantly, the outcome. And when you mentioned personalized therapy, I think the most important determinant of personalized therapy is the gender of the patient. Because clearly, women have larger tumors than men. We already know that the larger tumors are associated with more sparse growth hormone granules than the smaller tumors. But we haven't yet elucidated why and how to link that to the uh, gender differences. So I think gender-based epidemiology and biology approaches is going to be very important, especially over the next few years because of studies like your own, which have opened our eyes to this new data. And the second aspect, which is corollary to the epidemiology study, is the fact that we're now focusing far more, as we should, on the patient, the patient's feelings, the patient's quality of life, how do I feel about my disease? And we have now patients, and this has now been well documented, that, well, it's all very well. But you, I go and see my doctor, and he tells me my IGF-1 is normal, but I feel lousy. And even though my biochemical readings are normal, my doctor dismisses my personal feelings. And that is a very serious concern for us to consider as treating endocrinologists. And so the new studies which are coming out now on emphasizing the role of the quality of life of the patient, the economic impact of the disorder, the social impact, the family impact, all these considerations which are not necessarily linked to normalizing IGF-1 levels deserve a lot of further studies so that we can help our patients in the most holistic manner.
1: Dr. Melman, I would like to thank you for your time today and your insight with regards to progress in acromegaly. It has been amazing to have you with us. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you. And thanks for this lovely conversation. Thanks for listening to another great ACE podcast. Join us for another episode at aace.com slash podcasts and help us in our mission to elevate clinical endocrinology. Together, we are ACE.